So this is kind of um, what we've been doing the last few weeks. Just this idea that if you're a Christian, you are called to be on this mission of God. You are called to, to go. And we're not talking necessarily about going to Malaysia or going to the Congo. Uh, maybe that's what God, or going to Russia. Maybe that's what God has for you. But we are all called to go. Go to the workplace. Go to the school. Go to our neighborhoods and be ambassadors, representatives of Jesus Christ in, in our in our deed and in our actions in our examples but more than that also to look for opportunities to share the name of Jesus with those around us and in the beginning of the book of Acts the launch of the church there in the first century there is this um, specific call in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus makes before his ascension to heaven Jesus makes a specific call to his inner circle to go you remember to go to Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he makes this call. Did they go? Did they actually follow his calling? Did they, did they go? What do you think? Of course they did. We're here, right? I mean, we're here in Dallas, Texas. They went. And the gospel spread all over the ancient world and now to the four corners of the earth. Uh, the gospel has spread all over the place. And so in the beginning days, we see in the book of Acts so many, many people, sisters and brothers, putting their faith in Christ and spreading out. And that sounds great. We love that story, the expansion of the kingdom, um, the message going viral, if you will. Um, the deal is, and we encountered this a little bit last week, and we're going to encounter it again this morning. The deal is, whenever the message spreads, there is resistance. And resistance is, I suppose, a nice way of saying um, opposition, persecution, harassment, hostility. Because for those who accept this mission to go, there are trials and there are tests along the way that go along with, with our response to Jesus to actually follow Him. Trials and tests... Now, I think we could agree those are words that provoke a certain opinion or a certain reaction. Trials and tests. I mean, if you talk to a group of, of college students about tests, um, don't you love tests? I think we all know what the response to that would be. And we do, not just college students, but we do tend to think of trials and tests as being negative things, as being bad things. At the same time, you see in the book of Acts, and I think we see in our own lives, they really aren't bad. Um, they're, they're not pleasant, but they really are not bad things. Um, they are actually instrumental for deepening our faith, for strengthening us in Christ, and for the growth of the kingdom of God. Without trials, without tests, you don't get any of that. And if you really think about it, not just in a spiritual context, in pretty much every life context, we know that trials and tests are, are not bad things. I mean, if you are scheduled to have bypass surgery on your heart, I know a lot of peop people here have probably done that already. You want, do you want a surgeon who has been tested or a surgeon who is untested? I mean, I suppose for every heart surgeon, there was a first patient they operated on at some point, 
do you want to be the first person that they operate on? I don't think so. You want someone who has done that same operation hundreds of times. They've been tested over and over again. In medical school, they were tested. And you want the one who aced the tests. You don't want one who, you know, the medical school I went to, they really didn't do any tests. No, you want someone who is tested and who has performed that surgery hundreds of times. We know that that's a good thing. If you're catching a flight from DFW to Philadelphia um, and, and you go to the airport, you want to fly on a plane that's been tested. I mean, you, you don't want to hear from the airlines. You know what? Today we have a special treat for you. Your flight is going on a brand new airplane. It's actually a prototype. It's only existed in concept up to this point. We think it's going to be really great. It's going to fly to really high altitude, very fuel efficient, all this. But this will be the very first time this, this design has ever taken flight. Do you want to be a part of that? No, you don't. You're not Chuck Yeager. You want to get on that good old 737. It's not sexy, but you know it's going to get you from point A to point B. In the same way, a new ship or a new submarine, they go through what? They go through sea trials uh, where they are tested to make sure they're actually seaworthy. Um, by the way, this is why I'm never the first to install that new iOS on my phone because it never seems to work right. You know, when they tell you, hey, we got a brand new iOS for your iPhone, download it. And I always wait a few weeks, let some other people try it out uh, and find out what doesn't work and then let Apple come out with their fix. And then I download that, right? Because I like to have it be tested uh, before I put that on my phone. And I'm not saying, look, tests are a good thing. I'm not saying that we like them. I'm not saying that they're pleasant, uh, just that we can agree there's value in trials and tests. And certainly in the book of Acts, the faith and the commitment of the early Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ, was put through various tests. We saw last week the trials beginning for the early church with Peter and John. They had to appear before a, a sort of ad hoc court that was put together there in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4. They were arrested for healing and teaching in the name of Jesus. They were threatened, they were jailed overnight, and basically just really um, told, don't do this again or else by all of these leaders. It wasn't fun for them, um, but it was part of the growth process of the kingdom. But, uh, um, so, that, so that's kind of where we're at. Now this morning, in Acts chapter 6 and 7, we're going to see that it gets even more um, intense, if you will, as we encounter a person who was tested to the absolute limit. Um, Stephen, he was given an ultimatum. And he was told, if you do not renounce or deny or back off of your claims and your teaching about Jesus Christ, you will be killed. And so would Stephen play ball? Would he back down or would he continue to preach the truth? that he experienced in Jesus Christ. This was his test, his, I guess you could say, final exam for Stephen. Um, did he pass? Did he fail? Well, he ended up being executed. So whether he passed or failed the test, I think depends on whether or not you are a believer. If you're not a believer, if you think all of this is made up, he failed. What was he doing? I mean, just change your story. Back down. Live. Uh, don't, you don't die. Um, Life is all that there is. But if you're a believer, he is an inspiration to you. And if you're a believer, really in the book of Acts, you see Stephen as the spark that started the 
the forest fire of worldwide evangelism. His death really started that. Uh, So Stephen was the first Christian martyr, the first believer to be killed in the early church because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And that brings us, on your outline this morning, this brings us to two kind of thought questions, two things to ponder as we begin to think about Stephen this morning. The first question is a good question. Would I be willing to die for my faith in Jesus Christ? Would I be willing to die for my faith? And that is a good question. It's, it's an interesting one to think about. Very hypothetical, I think, here in the United States for Christians, for people like us. Um, what would I do if I was put in that situation where I either deny Jesus or I continue to, to proclaim Jesus and that cost me my life? A number of early Christians were actually put in that position. Um, would I be faithful even if it meant my execution? Now, I think it's an easy thing to say that, yes, we here in America, as, as believers, as the church, we know what persecution looks like. I mean, think about the Supreme Court decision a few weeks ago that imposed a certain view of, of, of sexuality on, the, on America. Think about prayer in schools. Think about this, that, and the other thing. Um, and certainly there are challenges that we face. But this is kind of, the, this is kind of part of the problem uh, or one of the problems with the text that we're going to experience this morning is persecution in the book of Acts meant imprisonment and execution. That's what it meant. Okay? It meant imprisonment and execution. And that is way out of our frame of reference. Thank God. We live in a place where our religious freedom is protected and where we can come together and worship. But it's out of our frame of reference that we would actually be put on trial, convicted, and killed for our faith. So it's a good question. Would I be willing to go that far? It's a good question. Something to think about. But a better question for us in Dallas in 2015 is this. So that second one, the better question. Am I willing to live for Jesus? Not am I willing to die for Jesus, but a better, more relevant question to us this morning. When I wake up tomorrow morning, am I willing to live for Jesus? Um, We probably won't face the situation, deny Jesus, or die. Each of us, however, will face this question. You can be sure, will I live for Jesus today? Will I be on mission? Will I go? Will I be the person that Jesus rescued me and redeemed me to be? That's a better question because it really does intersect with our life here in America. By the way, we do, I think it's good to just pause and say, we do have sisters and brothers in different parts of the world who the, the reality of, of, of dying for Jesus is real. Okay, and, and we should keep those brothers and sisters in our, in our prayers. Um, but for you and I... It's not so much whether we would die for Jesus, but whether we're willing to actually live for Jesus. To be exposed to some of the hostility, some of the difficulties, some of the challenges, some of the the, the judgments other people will make if we choose to live for Jesus. Will we do that or not? Now, people live for different things. Um, What is that thing that matters most to you that depends on who you ask? Um, what is that thing, that organizing principle that you center your life around, your money, your resources, your time, go more to that one thing than anything else? Well, it differs, right? 
And there's just kind of a list there on the, on the outline this morning. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these because I think we know what they are. At least this is not an exhaustive list, but we know what kind of these, these look like. Um, so idle pursuits. What are some of the wrong targets that people aim at in their lives? That they make their number one priority. For some people, it is independence. Um, I want more than anything else to just be independent. To not rely on anybody else. Comfort and ease. I mean, we are masters of that pursuit in North America. I mean, that is very important to us. For some folks, it's probably the number one thing in their life. To create a a situation where they have comfort and ease. Uh, Then there's affluence, which may go with that to some extent. Affluence. Um, economic prosperity that is number one for some people of course safety and security I just want me and my family to be safe and so they choose neighborhoods based on that because it's the organizing principle where they're gonna live is based on that who they vote for is based on that they drive the Volvo because that's number one for them I mean that that's really really important then there are people who organize their lives around pleasure okay pleasure And, of course, uh, achievement. Achievement is very important. The number one most important thing to some people, they will do anything to get ahead, do anything to kind of reach their personal or professional goals. An idol, okay, an idol. That's a strong word. That's That's a Bible word there that's very strong. It is anything other than the Lord that you give your heart to. It is, an idol is anything that is the center of your affections, other than God. Now, the list that we just went over, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. It's not wrong to pursue pleasure to some extent or to, or to want that or to desire that or security or safety or prosperity or independence. Those are not bad things. But as we've said on several occasions here, when a good thing becomes a God thing, then it's an idol, and it becomes destructive. When I center my life around anything other than God, it can, be, it can enslave me, and it can actually cause damage and, and take the rest of my life out of balance, damage to my life and, and relationships, and kind of send things out of balance. So pleasure, for example, pleasure is a good thing, uh, but when it takes the steering wheel, when it starts driving my life, um, uh, when it's the target that I'm aiming for, it's that bullseye that everything else uh, is subservient to. Um, it's destructive. It's expensive to to my spiritual health, uh, and expensive to all of the other really important things in my life because they're now minimized. So, back to Stephen. For Stephen, it was Jesus above all else. It was Jesus, loving. And pleasing the Lord was the bullseye, center target. So for disciples, uh, Stephen models this, for disciples there is a different bullseye. Write this one down. The difference between the good life and the God life, a decision to put Jesus at the center of who I am at the center of who I am and what I do. I never like, by the way, these questions. Uh, list the most important priorities in life. Number one, God. Number two, family. Number three, that's crazy. That's crazy. Um, 
It should, it should be, sure, number one, God, but number two, God and family. Number three, God and my job. Number four, God and my leisure time. God needs to be, on, it's not like he's in a compartment over here. And Okay, check that box. We're moving on to the next thing. God is, that's why we like to use the language of Jesus at the center. Everything else orbits around the Lord. All right, um, so Stephen gets caught up in, and let's just kind of introduce him a little bit here, give a little sketch on who he was. Jesus, uh, Stephen was part of the Jerusalem church, a very new church. Okay? We know he's a new Christian. Everyone was a new Christian in the Jerusalem church. The people with the, with the most experience with Jesus certainly would have been the, 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 the apostles there in the Jerusalem church who had three years of personal um, ministry training from Jesus. The rest of them were very new to the Christian faith. Um, and this church is a growing church. Growing churches always face tests. Growing businesses always face tests. Growing families always face tests, okay? And one of the tests for the church there as it grew was there were different groups of people. You had, for the most part, majority Jewish believers who had been born and raised in Jerusalem. Okay, they were all Jewish believers, I guess you could say that. But you also had Jewish believers who were born and raised in other parts of the world, kind of minority groups there within the Jerusalem church, um, called Greek or, yeah, yeah, called Greek or foreign um, people there. And among those, you had widows. So their families had passed away. They were the only ranked person. Um, they had no real source of income or anything. They were usually quite poor. They needed to be taken care of, whether they were Jewish widows, uh, or, or um, Hebrew widows or the Greek Jewish widows. Okay, I'm getting really... Okay, you got, I think you understand. Whether they were foreign or local, they needed help. Now, the problem specifically there, or one of the problems in Jerusalem was these foreign widows were kind of being ignored, and so they weren't getting the food and the basic necessities that they needed. And so the apostles decided this is an issue we've got to deal with. These ladies are very important to, to us as our sisters and spiritual mothers, in a sense. So we're going to appoint a task force, seven individuals, who will help make sure that these ladies get the food that they need. Now, the apostles, interestingly, lots of details this morning, but I think important details. The, the apostles didn't make this choice. They didn't do the selection process. Um, they said, you guys choose seven from amongst yourselves. They said that to the church. And so there were some, there were some obvious choices, some obvious young leaders there in the church, one of whom um, was this fellow, Stephen, so he was chosen, recognized as the servant leader. Um, he had done preaching and teaching, been very bold. He had, he had the, the, the ability to do signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. Uh, and, and with a Greek name like Stephanos, seemed like a really good choice to minister to the, the Hellenistic, the Greek widows there at the church. Um, was, could probably identify with them, probably knew a lot of these ladies. And so he was given, along with some others, the special burden of helping these folks find their place and be cared for in the church family. Okay, here's how he got arrested and put on trial. As part of his teaching and, and preaching ministry, Stephen um, was, 
would go to a certain synagogue. There were about 400 synagogues in Jerusalem at this time. He went to a certain synagogue um, there, and he was boldly arguing for Jesus as the Messiah. Um, This was a synagogue for people like Stephen, for foreign Jews who were living there in Jerusalem. Um, And so it was probably a synagogue where Stephen spent a lot of time. His arguments were so strong and so logical, so compelling, so grounded in Scripture that they were very persuasive. And there were those, obviously, we find out in the story, those who opposed him. Felt very strongly that what he was teaching was not right, but he was so compelling they could not defeat his arguments. Okay? They could not stand up to the points he was making based on prophecy and what Jesus had accomplished during his ministry, and so they just hated him all the more. Right? So guess what? They, they, hot, they hatched a plot to have him arrested. Um, they convinced some people to be false witnesses, to, to actually, in front of a, a trial court, to say Stephen is committing crimes. Okay? He's blaspheming. He is speaking against everything Jewish. Um, so basically, they got him arrested on, on those kinds of grounds. And in front of this group now of, of leaders there in Jerusalem, Stephen is asked, Are these charges true? Now, we are not going to read all of Stephen's response. I think it is a, the second longest sermon in the entire New Testament. Only the Sermon on the Mount is long. I mean, he talks and he talks and he talks there in Acts chapter 7. 53 verses. Now, essentially, he is going to tell them this. Um, not only am I not teaching against our faith... Not only am I not teaching against Jewish customs and traditions, Jesus Christ is the culmination of all of our Jewish history. Jesus is the one we have been waiting on as Jews, as God's chosen people. He's the one that everything has been pointing to. So when it comes to our story, our Jewish story, Jesus isn't a different story. He is the hero of our story. That is essentially his speech. So he is going to walk through pretty much the entire history of Israel from Abraham on. The plot line of the Jewish story has always been the same. One day, God will send a Savior, a Messiah, Messiah, who will save us and liberate us. Nobody challenged that. That was their plot line. They all knew it. That was the central theme of their traditions and their hopes and their scriptures. After walking them through the history of Israel, their story, and pointing to Jesus, how, how their story has been pointing to Jesus for centuries, he concludes. Now notice... He's not exactly backing down as we read his conclusion here in Acts 7, 51 to 53. And this is from the message. Stephen said, And you continue so bullheaded, calluses on your hearts, flaps on your ears, deliberately ignoring the Holy Spirit, you're just like your ancestors. 
Was there ever a prophet who didn't get the same treatment? Your ancestors killed anyone who dared to talk about the coming of the just one. And you've kept up the family tradition, traitors and murderers, all of you. You had God's law handed to you by angels, gift-wrapped. And you squandered it. They, he said, he said, you guys had it all. You are Jews. You're God's chosen. Chosen for what, though? Chosen for what? Chosen to be more special than anyone else? Chosen to be a better nation than any other nation? Chosen to be... Chosen to be what? Chosen, yes, but chosen for what? Chosen to be the people from whom salvation would come to all nations. A light to the nations. Chosen to be the people from whom the Savior, the Righteous One, the Messiah would come. The hope of all nations. This is their story. And by the way, they knew it. They knew that was their story. And they, Stephen says, they put the hope of Israel and the nations to death. Just like they had done to prophets throughout their history. Right there in Jerusalem, just a few weeks before, they had managed to have Jesus Christ, the Messiah, crucified. Now, Stephen understood that he was speaking truth to power. Um, he was not speaking a message that was getting a lot of amens, all right? Um, but it was the truth, and he had to speak a truth that was not very welcome. So let's continue here in verse 54. The Jewish leaders, as you might suppose, they were infuriated by Stephen's accusation. They were the ones who were supposed to be, they were accusing Stephen. And now Stephen is accusing them. They're infuriated. They shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. That was it. Verse 57. That was it. They put their hands over their ears. We don't want to hear this anymore. They began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took their coats off and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Spoiler alert, he's going to become the Apostle Paul. Okay. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus... Receive my spirit. He fell to his knees. And his last words here, he shouted, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Stephen was speaking to a group that enjoyed the good life. Um, they had the scriptures. They were part of this tradition. They were part of God's chosen People. They were leaders. They were successful, high achievers. People who had the good life. 
Remember the difference between the good life and the God life here. Um, it's that decision to put Jesus at the center, to recognize his identity as Lord of all and Lord of your life, the center of what you do and what you say and who you are. That's the bullseye. That's the bullseye. That's center target. That's why we're here. Jesus is the hero of the story. Stephen, regardless of outcomes to him personally, would not settle for less, would not back away from that bullseye. He was executed, and the church mourned. And then a crazy thing happened. The church began to grow like never before. It spread. Starting in Acts 8, verses 1 to 3, Saul was one of the witnesses. He agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. And some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul, notice how their stories intersect. I love how Luke does this in his history. The stories dovetail Stephen and Saul, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He was leading the persecution. He went house to house, dragging men and women out of their homes and throwing them into prison. Okay, so this test, this final exam for Stephen became, oddly enough, it became the launch pad for the global mission for the fulfilling of Jesus' command to go out from Jerusalem. Up to this point, the church of Jesus had been parked in Jerusalem. And now, because of this sacrifice, because of this, this amazing hero, Stephen, it begins to spread out of Jerusalem and radiate into the world. And I do find that interesting. How, how Luke, as he records his history, puts Stephen and Saul together. They're the only two individuals that he singles out here as he's telling the story. Stephen and Saul. And we can't know for sure. But it is very likely that Stephen and Saul had met each other before. Before the arrest, before the trial, before the stoning. Very likely they had met before. Given that all of this started, remember the whole melee started in that little synagogue for foreigners there in Jerusalem. And Luke tells us it was the synagogue that was frequented by people from a small province in the Roman Empire called Cilicia. That said Cilicia. Cilicia. Luke says there was, it was for Cilicians. Anybody remember where Paul or Saul was from? Tarsus. Guess what? Tarsus was a leading city in this little province, Cilicia. So that was the synagogue where people from Paul's part of the world would have gone to. Um, Saul was very likely a leading member of that synagogue. So my guess is, and this is a guess, I think it's a pretty good guess, that Saul would have heard Stephen in that synagogue. I would further guess, given that we know that Saul was a, a, an intelligent man, well-educated, school of Gamaliel, and a gifted debater, I would guess that he was one of those who was challenging Stephen. 
who was arguing, with, who was frustrated by Stephen, who couldn't best Stephen's logic or knowledge of the Scripture or how Jesus fit into that story. And so the sermon that Stephen preached in front of Saul and others in Acts chapter 7, that sermon was probably one of the first Christian sermons, think about it, one of the first Christian sermons that Saul ever heard. And I wonder if that long sermon that Stephen preaches that leads him to his death, I wonder if the words of that would echo in the Apostle Paul years later in his ministry, in his prayer life, in his own preaching. We preachers, we like to have good responses to our sermons. We like amens. We like for people to give their lives to Christ. We like for people to be touched. Um, Saul's response to Stephen's sermon was, was none of that. It was to assist in the preacher's execution. <laughs> that was how he responded to the message. To assist with Stephen's execution. So quickly, when we place... Jesus at the bullseye of our lives, the source of meaning and purpose for us, Stephen really models what that looks like and how that life is a full life. He was a young man, hadn't been a Christian for very long, and yes, his life was cut short, but his life was full because of his devotion to Christ. In fact, Luke five times is going to use that word full to describe this young man, Stephen. So let's talk about what that looks like, this, this targeted life that's centered on Jesus and where the fullness comes from. Luke tells us that Jesus, or rather, that Stephen was full of the Spirit there in verse 3. Full of the Spirit. That means Stephen was moved by God's agenda not his own. He was not full of himself and full of his plans and full of... He was full of God's to-do list, full of God's will. His spirit ran Stephen's life, and so there he found this uncommon peace, joy, uncommon boldness in the face of opposition and also signs and wonders because he was full of the spirit that confirmed the message that he taught. He was also, Luke says, verse 3, full of wisdom, as were the other seven who were chosen to help take care of those widows, full of wisdom. Think about wisdom for a second. It's one thing to be smart or to be clever. It's one thing to know a whole bunch of information and facts. I mean, we all now, because of the Internet, have all of that at our fingertips. It's one thing to have access to all the facts. It's another thing to be wise. Wisdom is about understanding. Um, you can read, for example, you can read the Bible. You can know all sorts of details about the Scriptures and not understand them. The people putting Stephen on trial were proof of this. They knew the Scriptures. These were the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They knew the Scriptures forward and backward. They knew the Scriptures, but they did not understand the Scriptures. 
They had experienced the ritual of circumcision. They had had this act performed on them, but as Stephen tells them in verse 51, they were uncircumcised in heart and ears. Daniel Borston uh, is, was a historian, University of Chicago, and then was the head of the Library of Congress. And he has a, there's a quote from him that I think is one of my favorite quotes right now. So I'll just read you his quote. It's brilliant. He says, the greatest obstacle to discovery is not ignorance. It is the illusion of knowledge. Basically, people stop growing and learning when they think they know something. Stephen could set aside traditions and customs that clouded others from seeing and understanding the bigger picture of what God was up to, what he had always been up to. He was able to see Christ, obviously there in the center of the Tanakh, of the Old Testament. He could discern how it all fit together so perfectly. Jesus wasn't just another prophet. He wasn't just a, wow, another miracle worker. Jesus was, according to Stephen, the righteous one. The one Israel had been waiting on. He understood the story. That's what it means, being full of wisdom, grasping the story, not just the parts of the story. Wisdom is seeing how all, it fit, all of that fits together and, and obviously how you fit into the story. Um, so Stephen wouldn't have given his life had he not had the wisdom to understand God's story and the important role that he was called to play in that story. So Luke was right. He was full of wisdom. Also, number three, full of faith. I mean, that's pretty obvious, considering that he was willing to die for Jesus, but full of faith, verse 5. Faithful to death. Faith is important because, if we step away from Stephen just for a second, faith allows us to see God even in a difficult time. When you are being tested or tried financially, relationally, tested and tried with your health, Faith allows you to see the unseen realm, the eternal realm. Faith allows you to see beyond the difficulties of the moment, the circumstances and situations in which you find yourself. Remember, Stephen was surrounded by, surrounded by, all he could see with his eyes was a bloodthirsty mob throwing stones at him. So without faith, it's easy to get off target and get rattled by these kinds of circumstances that are so difficult. But our faith grounds us and gives us momentum to push through. Because Stephen, remember? That's what he saw. He was able to look upward. And he saw Jesus. And that pulls us through when we're tired and we're frustrated and we're hurting 
you see Jesus, you can pull through. Stephen was full of faith. And then number four, full of grace. We're about to finish up here. Verse 8. Luke says he was full of grace. He was a graceful person. Think about Jesus, who Stephen followed. Jesus ministered to people. He washed feet. He spent time with tax collectors and sinners. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He, Jesus exuded grace. And Stephen was a man who didn't just preach and perform miracles, but he also went about the quiet work of feeding hungry widows who'd been ignored by everybody else. Stephen exuded grace. Of course, no place is more evident than as he is surrounded by this bloodthirsty mob. And instead of choosing anger and revenge, he chooses the path of forgiveness. Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They know what they do. Stephen, being stoned to death, his last words, God, don't hold this against them. Forgive them. Full of grace. And finally, full of power. Verse 8. Powerful life. Now, as we conclude, one more interesting thing, and we are almost done, but this is really important. Stephen, Stephanos. Stephanos is a Greek word. It's a name and a Greek word. And it means the prize. Remember, the Greeks came up with this whole Olympics thing, right? The Stephanos was the prize. It was the crown, the laurel wreath that the champion would be given. The one who finished the race victoriously, they were given the Stephanos, the prize. And Stephen was a person of power, yes. He ran the race. He didn't quit. He won the prize. Stephanos won the Stephanos. You may have heard the story of Matt Emmons before, an Olympic athlete from the United States back in Athens 2004. He was representing the U.S. in the three-position shooting event. And Matt Emmons had performed so well that he had built, going into the final round, virtually an insurmountable lead. Obviously, that word virtually is important here. He had built virtually an insurmountable lead. In fact, his final shot... All it needed to do was just hit the target. Anywhere. Just hit the target. And the gold medal would be his. He would have his Stephanos. And so he focused on his breathing. And he focused on, on steadying his hands. Really, he should have been focused on firing at the correct target. <clears throat> because he bullseyed the target, only he was in lane two, and the target he hit was in lane one. No score appeared. No score appeared. And Matt Emmons was confused. He, he gestured to the officials that he thought there was something wrong. And he had done everything right, just everything right, just shot at the wrong target. 
And you can do, look, you can do a, a great job at a lot of really good things in life. You can make money. You can, you can have a great, beautiful family. Your kids go off to college and all that stuff. You, you, you can carve out a comfortable and secure uh, home. And that's good. It really is good. But what are you aiming at, ultimately? What do you trust in to bring ultimate satisfaction and meaning to your life? And if it is not Jesus, you are aiming at the wrong target. If it's not Jesus, you're aiming at the wrong target. He gave his life for you to set you free. He gave his life so that you could pursue what matters most. Life in him. We're going to finish up this morning our sermon time with a prayer. Let's bow our heads together. Father, may we be fully, fully yours. We ask you to pour into us your spirit, your wisdom, faith in you, grace in all situations, and power, just as you did in the life of your servant Stephen. We also ask that you raise up a new generation. Stephen was, was a young man. And we, praise that, we pray that you raise up a, a new generation of disciples who are willing to put Jesus in the bullseye of their hopes and dreams, a generation that is willing to go. Whether it's across the sea or across the street, may we all be a people who answer the call to go. This is our prayer in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We invite you to respond as we stand this morning. Sing.